And we are live with our 183rd episode of Absolute AppSec. I'm Seth Law, at Seth Law on Twitter, joined today by a new lovely co-host or someone who's been on the podcast multiple times, uh, Logic Hill, uh, Stefan Edwards, at Logic Hill on Twitter. Stefan, say hi. Hi. And I did not pay $50,000 for this visit. That's, that's a <laughs> what? <lie>. Wait, <laughs> wait, wait, wait. <laughs> We're done. We're done. No, just kidding. <laughs> We're super excited today to have the legendary Patman from Twitter on with us as well to talk about cyber warfare and information warfare. Uh, Pat, uh, you want to say hi before we kind of jump into things? Hey, everyone has things. And uh, where, where's my cut of the 50K? Yeah, exactly. That's what I would, yeah. <laughs> apparently like uh th that's gonna get a really small today because stefan's not paying like he should be so yeah exactly <laughs> we'll get it in beer somewhere along the way when we yeah. we all go out um today's a little bit outside of our box from a regular absolute appsec uh, perspective um given the world climate today uh we wanted to talk a little bit more about cyber warfare information warfare we mentioned earlier this year as the it army stuff was starting with ukraine and um like we got into the topics a little bit um so stefan and i have been talking for a while and he suggested that we bring pat on so by way of introduction pat is the community manager of the arms control wonk podcast and is very involved in the information warfare space, defining what that is, what that looks like. And has done a lot of research into, into those topics. Um, so we wanted to dive in and just have a discussion about what information warfare is, what it looks like, what that looks like from an AppSec perspective, like as, as I'm coming into it as a consultant and, you know, dropping into um, organizations talking about nation state threats and other things that are sometimes outside of the scope, it becomes very interesting because it is something that we still have to talk about from a threat perspective and protecting our data, protecting our applications. Um, so, so from there, what we do want to preface with is that these are all our own opinions. They do not reflect the opinions of employers or um I don't know, communities at large, I, you know, and any other preface there that you want to add to that, uh, Pat, Stefan? No, that's your personal opinion. Personal <laughs> opinions? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't, these don't even represent my opinions. <laughs> I represent <laughs> no, no one. And in fact, this is the only thing I paid Seth to say this entire, <laughs> this entire time is that this represents nothing. <laughs> it's just, I want to have an open and honest discussion, but obviously this this represents none of our employers, uh, potential employers, or or anything in between. So that's get a, gets a little hard to say for me when I you know, never mind. No, it doesn't. It doesn't represent my employer. Right? Like I running my own little consulting firm, right? But um, I, yeah, I, I I'm interested to hear like uh, you know where the impetus start us and started, and and maybe Stefan, if you want to. If you want to dive in initially, I know you were reading a book that was interesting that came along and actually spurred uh, setup of this podcast. And oh, before we jump into that, too, I did want to say hi to Ken. Since he's not on today, he had uh, apparently a vacation took priority. So we decided to just run it without him. So anyway. Yeah. No, I'm very interested in information warfare in, in uh 
in cyber warfare, information operations, uh, electronic warfare, those sorts of things. Uh, in fact, that's how Pat and I met. Um, I joined the Arms Control Wonk uh, podcast Slack in order to read more about it. I, I had been seeing some of the things coming out. Um, and one of the things that actually came up on that Slack was this book, which is Offensive Cyber Operations by Daniel Moore. Uh, he's written a couple of articles with uh, Thomas Ridd and things like that. And Moore tries to define what are the, the optimal conditions for cyber warfare. Like when does a hack go from uh, a nation state actor is uh, infiltrating a network to steal some information, money, et cetera. When does it go from a crime to actually warfare? Uh, and so there's, there's some interesting points in there. And then he models two different types of, of like cyber operations there longer term. Uh, he, he models what he calls event-based operations, which are basically like you pull a trigger, the, the, what he uses. I'm, I hate this nomenclature, but he uses it in the book. Um, you pull a trigger and something happens and there's an event that occurs and the hack happens there uh, versus presence-based operations, which are like, I've broken into a business and now I'm, or a, a government agency, I'm uh, at a specific position. I move laterally. I have some longer term goals that I'm looking to, to undertake there. Uh, so those were the, the two main takeaways. Um, I have quite a few notes on the book. Uh, it's, it's definitely a very academic text. Like I wouldn't recommend it for, for general reading, uh, but it, it's, it's definitely fascinating if you're interested in like, what is the strategy behind cyber warfare and whatnot. Uh, and I also wanted to talk with Pat about it because this is, this is Pat's domain and it's, it's, it's very interesting there as well. Okay. Yeah. Well, and I mean, from my perspective, the, you know, the, the initial ask from the Ukraine um, to actually launch cyber warfare. Can I just um, jump in a second? Yes, yes, go ahead, Pat. There yeah. is no such thing as the Ukraine. That's that true. is something that Vladimir Putin would like everyone to remember, and that's part of a persistent information operation that they have been running for an extended period of time. The country is Ukraine. Ukraine, uh-huh. Okay. Yeah, they, in fact, Ukraine, uh, like the word uh, Ukrainia, uh, means like borderlands. Uh, and so... Ukraine is pushing that they are more than just borderlands. So saying the Ukraine is sort of enforcing that they're just borders of the larger like Russian state. Um, and they've, they've carved out an identity uh, away from it. But that's actually an interesting point because that's the level of operations that we're dealing with in, in right. these sorts of things mm -hmm. are tweets that go out there that call it the Ukraine or white Russia or, or anything there all the way through to breaking into, uh, into energy providers within, within Ukraine to, to, you know, turn off the grid or, you know, find information on a, a specific person or anything there. Uh, that's the level that we're, we're dealing with when we're talking about cyber war or information war. Um, although the author does not believe, and I, I think, uh, this is my opinion. I don't know, Pat, if you disagree. I don't think there is cyber war. There's cyber warfare, but I don't think there's going to be like, you know, packets flying back and forth and then we capitulate and everyone's done until maybe far in the future. <laughs> no, I yeah. don't even think in the future. Right. I, I can say a lot on it, but like, we'll wait a minute for that. <laughs> yeah. 
yeah, how it affects the actual like real world is where it comes into play, right? Um, so exactly to your point, Pat, right? That, that the reference and, you know, apologize for that. Um, but the Ukraine- is that you, yeah. like, One of the most important things you can do to combat uh, propaganda dis disinformation is just to point these things out sometimes. And, yeah. you know, it's not always necessarily going to work as we've seen with like um, certain political things in the United States. Like I'm on the outside looking in, but, you know, you just can't approach these things in that kind of way. They're much harder problems than like, in a lot of ways, like here in Europe in particular, I don't particularly notice like in the, in the United States, but a lot of Europe is behind Ukraine. So for us, for someone like me, just to point that out, that really gets through to people and gets the point across. Yep. Yeah. It, no, it, it really does. Because again, it's the, the propaganda, what we actually hear in the United States is different than what you hear in the EU um, or, you know, what's coming out of Ukraine, right? Like I have very few feeds that come into that, right? I, I have to pay attention to actually see something, um, which is why that, you know, the, the ask from Ukraine for, for cyber attacks or help against Russia has been, it's been an interesting thing to follow. I don't know how much activity is still going on there. Um, I just haven't followed it that closely. I mean, Stefan, do you know? I mean, Pat, you know, what do you hear on your end as well? Uh, I will be honest. I haven't really followed this uh, in that kind of depth since June. Okay. Because yeah. um, I wrote a, a talk for a yes. private organization. Yeah. You, so I, I gave a talk at Besides Dublin. And then a, there's a private company over here that does professional teaching for like credits and stuff towards your professional education credits. Mm. And I gave a talk to them on what, what we as like people in the profession can learn from the conflict in Ukraine. And I didn't have that much time to go into it because I only had, I think like a half an hour in the end, but I had a lot to say on like three small topics. So yeah, it's, after that, I've kind of like went back to the open source intelligence side of it because there's a lot happening and there's only so much mental bandwidth to dedicate to these things. And there's so much to kind of follow and go through. Yeah. Yeah, fair enough, right? I, I mean, I'm, I'm with you. I haven't necessarily followed it after that initial surge um, when it was... Again, it was in the news, like there was a, a lot of activity around it, um, but people are fickle and the news cycle is fickle. And so it switches off and I, you know, I, lo I lost sight of it as well. I, I mean, Stefan, what, have, what are your thoughts there? It's, it's definitely been interesting. Um, I'd be lying if I, if I didn't say that, uh, you know, a lot of what I read is the sort of thing that Pat put together. I, I, I uh, dropped Pat's uh, tweet into um, into uh, the chat here in, in Streamyard, but um, yep. you know a lot of a lot of what I follow are uh, the same sorts of like Intel feeds and uh, Slack threads and things like that. And it's been it's been very honestly overwhelming. One of the things that Pat has has mentioned and others have mentioned on the the Arms Control Wonk podcast is remember to take a break. Remember. To, to step away. Um, my fiance at one point was putting up with me watching Ukrainian news for like 12 to 16 hours a day. And, you know, I was, 
trying to find if friends had made it out. I was trying to find if uh, friends were still alive. And so, uh, you know, it's been a, it's been a very weird uh, network connected uh, conflict because I've had friends who have been like on their live Instagram, uh, you know, like their entire building is destroyed behind them and they're walking and they're like, Hey, we're, you know, we made it out alive. Everyone who's, uh, you know, who was worried about us, we're, we're going. So it's been a, a very strange conflict generally because it's so network connected. There's information operations going on. There's a lot of, you know, uh, disinformation. There's a lot of uh, like, you know, positive propaganda out there. Um, and then there's also just the actual network level attacks. And it's been, it's been a lot to follow. It's been very intense, honestly. Yeah. Yeah. And well, and that, that would be my question to Pat as well, right? From, you know, how do you, how do you, I don't know, how do you actually siphon through all of this data to, to, to figure out what, like, what is important to you, right? Like, or what you can do. I'm kind of lucky in a way that I, I've, a, I've a really good friend who works for a threat intelligence company and he doesn't give me access to the expensive premium like E5 license type uh, intel that they have, but he will occasionally just in a, in a channel where in on a chat app, he'll just drop in like a reference to something insert UA. And I might have to go into Google Translate with it. Like I, I've horrendous dyslexia. I don't speak foreign languages and I barely speak English, you know? So for me, like digging into those kind of things and like, getting kind of hints as to what's going on is some of the, like some of the best ways that I use to learn through it. I tend not to go near Twitter because, um, you know, the, the drama side of things can really skew kind of what's going on. And there's a lot of complicated bits on it that like as an industry in a whole, when it comes to threat intelligence, like we just need to get better on what, like we can't figure out how to name given actors and stuff like that. And what certain UA might call someone. And like, this isn't a slant against them, but like Mandiant has a different name for them. Occasionally Microsoft Mystic has their own names for them. Even, even on the first day of the conflict, I remember when the Foxblade malware came out. And I spent days trying to figure out what that was at the very start of the conflict because Microsoft called it one thing and no one else ran with that. And they didn't, as, as I understand it, they didn't release that malware to anyone. So you had um, analysts who didn't have access to what Microsoft were calling Foxblade and they were doing the same thing. And there's nothing wrong with replicating each other's work. Like, that, like that's good process to understand from different perspectives what's going on but all the other companies had different names for it and trying to figure out what it was because microsoft said this was important enough to release a patch in like like an out-of-band patch in three or four hours so mm -hmm. like to me when i hear that my brain goes like this is like flame back in the day that was taken um that took over windows uh, update to distribute malware so like when i heard that i was like out of band Microsoft patch, that's that's gotta be something good. Something and good. it was ransomware. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Somebody's exploiting it, something somebody's doing something, definitely. Well, and I, I mean that's what I well, okay, that's what I keep going back to is 
um, like someone that is actively watching, actively, you know, trying to filter through this information, figure out what is, what is yeah. real, so, what's well, not like how, how does like, be how do lay people do this? Yeah. An, un an understanding of like my process. Um, yes. One of yes, the things please. I've kind of been, uh, because I work with open source intelligence analysts. Um, one of the things I've been trying to drive through to people is, um, using something like the feed cycle and like we do it in a purely curiosity driven way where like i don't want to say like we we have one guy in particular i call him horatio when he comes up in my blog posts but um not his real name and what horatio does is basically he he follows things basically on curiosity something interesting happens somewhere in the world and he just wants to know about it because he wants to know and if he does that and then all of a sudden he has a thousand message thread in Slack that's been updated over the course of a year with incredible imagery and analysis and like going over what he has again because new stuff has come up and he's gone through it. That's the kind of stuff I encourage. And the big part about feed is at the very beginning and it's how you go through, how you collect the various different things that that's are there. So for me, the big thing is uh, using Twitter lists and uh, mm -hmm. using Feedly. Um, you can, I'm sure you could use any number of various different things to do the same thing, but there's a few accounts that I really trust uh, of like people who are brilliant. Uh, there's a few different things in there, like the various things that companies might say on their Twitter, because like there'll be like marketing and like we've released this or there's a product update and you need to, be, but then occasionally like you'll get a little drop in that's like, we have a new investigation on so-and-so and dig into that and look into that and see what that is. And then use Feedly to just like, find tags that people are using and you can you like feedly will just search everything that it is that it has uh coming in in various different feeds and then try and find these hashtags in it so if you can build various different hashtags to try and like understand various different things that are happening you'll really easily kind of like filter out various different things by doing that so like um outside of cyber if you look at north korea uh, we look a lot at North Korea from an OSINT perspective and you could spend, oh my God, there's so much news and like there's dedicated sites, there's like professional journalists, analysts, there are organizations that are private that are working on their own thing, there's academic institutions and they're publishing stuff all the time. You will like you will never sleep if you want to try and keep up with the news and even trying to understand bits of it. Like uh, the daily NK has two editions. There's the English one, which, you know, I can read no problem. And then there's the Korean edition and not all of the articles get translated and Google translate isn't always that great. So, you know, there's people who are repeating the same things, but in their own words, there are people who are kind of, working on their own thing and then there's news analysis reports all of that so if you can string together like specific technical terms for example for a various different thing so like if you want to find out about uh nuclear weapons you can go and you could have a look at the diplomat and there'll be tons of stuff on the diplomat uh about north korean nuclear weapons but if you just want to know 
only the nuclear weapon stuff, knowing to search for a uh, composite pit and plutonium or something like um, you could look for uh, the various different names of missiles or like there's nicknames in the community for like um, the primary stage of the bombs is called the peanut or that sorry the disco ball of death and the thermonuclear uh, two piece is yeah well you got to get them in it's called the peanut I mean and it, it's based based on how they look and the little things like that that like filter through to the analysts because like there's a lot of talk between all of us like even if we're not necessarily like talking all the time there's a certain lexicon that you that you build up in time and you see the same thing in cyber you know so using them to try and kind of like only find things based on the keywords or based on the things that are important that's kind of how i go about and do it and then everything kind of then just builds off of that um and the other thing that you kind of can't exactly do on that kind of front is academic papers and books um and i just like when it comes to books um like i'm sure stefan's seen this enough in slack where occasionally i'll like just post up a thread and it'll be yep 20 or 30 different books that i've read in the past six months to a year something like that and i'll just say garbage 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 not worth your time this thing was really interesting for this like one chapter and then like these two books here gold you gotta read them kind of thing um so like it just comes down to then just like getting away from the computer and that and just like taking the books with you and reading them so i'm a fan of hiking i will feck off up a mountain and i'll take the book with me and i have everything i need to make a cup of coffee there's a hiking route near me it has a picnic table i'll sit down for a bit make my cup of coffee and i'll just read a couple of chapters of the book and, and on the way back down i'll just think about it take mental notes that kind of thing and just go from there because like a, a lot of a, a lot of just like once you've filtered through all of the information, like getting anything useful out of it is spending time thinking about the various different things because, you know, the real, it's, it's, you know, like if you just have like a pile of information, that's not really all that useful. Like the whole idea of intelligence is to take information and distill the good stuff down into intelligence you know so in a lot of ways like a lot of it is just like um take mental notes or use a note-taking app or i i'm a big fan of pen and paper you know mm -hmm. and just kind of take these things down and come back to them later reread them you know the, the idea of taking the information you have and doing a reanalysis of it over a period of time to try and like build a better picture of what's going on or to kind of like update your perspective on it because like information does have a shelf life it gets stale well you, you know you you mentioned something interesting pat and I, I think it harkens back to the the uh discussion we had about the name of of the country that we're even talking about uh a lot of a lot of the work that you see um, in AppSec is like, oh, that's an XXS, uh, XSS, that is an XXE, that is whatever. Whereas when you're dealing with these sorts of intelligence matters, um, especially in OSINT, in, in open sources intelligence, there's a lot more context and a lot more contextual information that um, is is lost when you are 
not familiar with cultures, when you're not familiar with with regions. Um, and it, it becomes very difficult to discern what is good information, what's bad information. For example, the name of the capital of Ukraine, uh, you know, is it Kiev? Is it Kyiv? Is it, uh, you know, whatever? Um, it depends on, on the language that you are taking the source from, right? Kiev versus Kyiv, right? Uh, Russian versus Ukrainian. It depends on historical trends that you, you have there. And if you're not familiar, uh, you could be reading a source that is trying to, you know, claim that is a Ukrainian source and then uses a Russian word for something. And, and that in itself itself is not even enough because in Ukraine, pe some people, especially closer to the border, mix Russian and Ukrainian words. It's, it's very common. Um, and people towards the Polish side tend to be much more uh, like using like pure Ukrainian. I, I, I hesitate to use that phrase, but you know what I mean? Like much less uh, dialectical, much more uh, Western Ukrainian phrasing. And um, there's, there's a lot of information that you have to know just to discern, is this tweet actually from who it seems to be? Is this uh, tweet containing the information that it seems to contain? And it's, a very different domain than I think a lot of the absolute AppSec listeners would normally be in, which is like, Hey, I, I'm scanning a site. I'm looking at some DNS ranges. Even, even DNS ranges can be interesting or uh, IP ranges can be interesting there because where does it live? Uh, you know, does it matter whose, whose IP this is? Uh, it gets gray very quickly. And what Pat is talking about, gets gray. It's, it starts gray and just gets more and more diffuse mm -hmm. from there. It's not, ever very clear it's yeah. words of estimated probability it's it's like how much you think it's accurate there and how much confidence ultimately yes. you have in everything because i could like when it came to ukraine's on the offense at the moment uh the offensive at the moment and you know i have seen quite a few things in the past few weeks that have made me think i think i know what they're going to do and this kind of looks like it, but I don't really know. And then, you know, turns out the offensive didn't happen. It's just there was a clash near a village somewhere. And that was it for that day on that sector kind of thing. And, you know, as well as that, like Ukrainian operational security has been like fantastic the past few weeks. Um, so from that kind of perspective, like you run into exactly the same problem of kind of like, understanding things you can't necessarily jump straight to conclusions and even if you are looking at people doing OSINT on the internet you can very quickly tell the difference in some cases between people who know what they're talking about and people who don't because I'm a, I'm a huge fan of aircraft and if you <laughs> look at certain military aircraft um, a great example is uh, the virtual background that I had up here um, where was it uh, I can't get it up now. I think it's in settings, actually. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Virtual background. There we go. So th this plane here, that is a Cobra ball. And the whole thing that the Cobra ball does is it's for uh, gathering measurement intelligence. And it measures basically the acceleration of missiles as they take off. It catches some of the telemetry signals that go back and forward. And it's like ultra fancy signals intelligence combined with some other stuff. And it's essentially a flying camera and radio, you know? Mm -hmm. And 
if you see one of them in the air, you will tend to see people who are going, so-and-so is going to launch a missile. But also, it's a Boeing 707 from 1961. <laughs> There's kind of not a whole lot of them flying anywhere in the world. And there are, like the US Air Force says, you have to get a certain number of hours in your plane. You know, if you want to be qualified to fly, you need to hit these many flight hours. It's like 18 a month, 20 a month, something like that they have to do, you know? So, you know, a lot of the times that some of the aircraft are up, even fancy intelligence ones, and they look like they could be doing a mission, that could just be mock mission and you have no way to tell and your information is shit, but mm -hmm. you can't, you can't tell that. So, like, if you look at plane trackers, you'll see ones that'll go, oh, the E-6B Mercury is up. The Americans are planning a nuclear war, blah, blah, And then also it'll be like, uh, there'll be other people who'll just be like, hey, look, this cool plane took us. And, like, you can see that definitely. And I'm sure, like, if you look at threat intelligence feeds from, like, various people on Twitter, you'll see things. Because I, I remember earlier this year, because it was on Risky Biz, there was some dude who had a meltdown, um, basically saying that his analysis was like, so-and-so, the Russians or the Chinese. Or so. And it's like, could be. And I kind of see where you're coming from, but you're basing this off of, like, a string in an executable, and you're building a huge pattern over time based off that and not really a solid kind of way to build any kind of decision on because that's ultimately what intelligence is about like it's all well and good for me to kind of like play around tracking planes or missile launches or nuclear weapons material or anything like that but ultimately the, the the idea is that you ultimately disseminate it to policymakers. so you know the first step if you're in an organization is you need to figure out what the CISO or the CTO or whoever wants to see and then provide them that kind of information so that they can build uh, the architecture of the organization around those kind of things. And like, yeah. I'll be honest, I don't know a whole lot about application security, but if you have some kind of application, like chief of application design or architecture or something like that, if they're designing a new product or a major update to the product, they need to be aware of the threats because if the threats have massively changed in the past six months or year or something like that, you need to make them aware of that so that they can design for these kind of things. Because like there was even, was it 2020 or 21 where SQLI started coming back? Like I yeah. thought that was a solved problem. How did we forget that? <laughs> It's a, it's it's all the same problems and they pop back up. But yeah. to 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 your point, right? Like I, I mean, when we start talking OSMs and we start talking about it in the application space, I instantly go to threat analysis. You know, we talk about doing you know some sort of threat model for the application for the organization at different layers, so that your like your coders and your architecture, your protections all fit the threats that exist for that application, um, depending on what's actually in it. Um, but what I do see from a, you know, from a deficiency perspective in the app space is the fact that we decide that the threats are static, right? Uh, we do it once when we're developing the product the initial time, and then we don't take into account that we've all of a sudden added, you know, all sorts of consumer data, all sorts of, you know, governmental data or like, 
whatever is going into this application and we don't update the protections based upon that, there's a, there's a real kind of like miss that happens there in a lot of organizations that I look at. Um, I, I mean, I, you know, Stefan, I don't want to put you too much on the spot over at, you know, at, at GitHub and, and Microsoft, but do you guys like reanalyze your threats on a periodic basis? Yeah, we, you know, I think a lot of, a lot of what you'll see in larger businesses is there's like a, a threat Intel team. So, you know, Pat mentioned like actors and, and threat Intel feeds and things like this. There are teams that handle that sort of thing at larger organizations to surface the, 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 you know, global socioeconomic risks that are out there for, for what you're looking at. And I, I think it also brings up a larger point. Um, you know, Ukraine was stable and the, the war was, was basically frozen. You know, we had, you know, those various people's republics in there and everything was, was, you know, not great, but it was, it was stable until it wasn't. And all of a sudden in, in February, an exercise turned into a, a larger, right. And a special yeah. operation. <laughs> something, something we had been following since March of 2021. Exactly. Exactly. Exercise. And, yeah. and that was it. Like, you know, if you, and I, I'll be honest, I, I was uh, 50, 50 as to whether or not this would kick off because I felt uh, you know, the, the Russian side could gain a lot by saber rattling and not having to go in, but I could absolutely see them going in. And, uh, you know, it was a, uh, it, it was something that was being tracked for a very long time. And the, again, the, the situation is stable. You have a, a threat actor, you have something that is there. You're just a tax company in Ukraine. Um, you just make tax software. You're super boring until you're the epicenter for not Petya. Right. It's it, you have mm -hmm. yep. that sort of that sort of like change in the, the global dynamic that is is fascinating and very different from the sort of like static threat model that most companies would, would put out there. That's that's where my interest in this lies is like suddenly you go from what is it? MedDoc or, or MeDoc? That M -E -Doc, is the yeah. yeah, M -E Doc. Thank you. Um, that was they were they made software for Ukrainian businesses to fill in Ukrainian taxes. And they went from that to they were the epicenter of not Petra spreading and and uh, a bunch of offensive, uh, you know, information operations and, and uh, cyber operations launching from their office from an, uh, a backdoored update. Yeah. So you go from a very boring business like what was their threat model? Probably not an, a NatSec actor breaking in and, and backdooring their updates, maybe some tax fraud maybe some like criminal activity, but certainly not, we're going to be the epicenter of, of everyone getting, uh, like, you know, having to rethink about their, their business continuity plans. Like Maersk was impacted by this, right? Like, <laughs> like global yeah. shipping stopped yeah. because of a small company in Ukraine being hacked. And it's, I'm not blaming the company. Obviously you're not going to divine your, your threat model from, are the Russians going to hack? Is North Korea going to hack us? Right, like Sony. But like, not even that. Like, if you think about it, um, like uh, here in Ireland, we had the health service hack. Yes. Uh, yes. You know, that was Conti. And if you think about it, in a lot of ways, like I, I talked about this when I gave uh, a talk earlier this year on this. Ultimately, regardless of whatever the organization is, 
very few organizations' primary goal, and this doesn't matter like where you stand on like capitalism good, capitalism bad, or on any kind of like political spectrum or anything like that. Ultimately, a public health service like we have here, I'm the ultimate end customer of that. My health is what the job is there. And yeah, of course, cybersecurity is important to that. There's computers used at nearly every step of me going into a hospital and getting treated for anything. If I need an x-ray, a radiologist has that come up on a computer and does that. And securing all these things, which like vendors of these products haven't done anything on because there's no money for them in doing that, you know? The ultimate end end goal of that is like there's no kind of business model there for them to do anything. And forcing them to do anything cyber wise is probably going to be very difficult for those companies. Like I'm sure for Siemens or something like that, making CAT scanners, they can fairly afford to do it. But like not all companies are massive multinational companies and there are small suppliers here in Ireland. I know some of them personally who just like all they did was supply COVID tests because they worked in lab equipment before and this is how you do small little lab things after, you know, they're, that's not their thing. So like when it came to the, Conti getting in and doing whatever they did. I don't blame the cybersecurity staff there. Yes. You know, that's not their fault. And it's the same at ME Doc. It's very, like, I'm very sympathetic towards those people. And not just because you don't blame the victim or anything, but, you know, you have to look at the larger picture. And how can they, like, how much money is there legitimately in, like, putting, how much does it cost? to recoup all of their technical debt and get yep. them up to a modern standard. Or even, even on a even on a year-to-year basis, if you're a solid company, like say you're, um, I was going to say Twitter, and then I remembered there was a whole <laughs> shit storm there. But it, like, if you're, if you're Microsoft, you know, and not to dig on Microsoft or anything, but they're, they're a mature company that hire, like they have a lot of very fantastic staff. You know, how, how do how do you put all of this into your various different products? And obviously now for Microsoft, security has kind of become their product in a lot of ways. Um, like not just with like the likes of Defender, but making sure that Windows month to month is patched and everything is kept on top of, you know, there is some degree of a business model for them there to be able to make money off of that, you know, and they do that through licenses and stuff. Like you can get the E5, get full access to all your logs on Azure, various different things like that. But that that's a very limited set of companies and not just as a limited set of companies. You're also then just kind of exclusively talking about public companies where reputation for them is everything. Because yeah. even if investors don't know Jack about cyber, what they do know is hacks are bad. They yeah. impact the bottom line. You know, so from that kind of perspective, like someone like ME Doc, who could be like a small privately held company with 10 employees. Like, yeah, but it, well, yeah, I, I was just going to say the, 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 I think it speaks to the fact that you're, you know, we're, it's, it's part of a supply chain. It's part of a, part of an ecosystem and often you're going to be targeted uh, you're going to be targeted because you are in a specific space or you're a, a specific, like 
the health services might have been targets of opportunity. They might have been targets to move laterally into something else. Um, same with ME Doc. They like likely they were not targeting it because they wanted to go after ME Doc specifically, but because yeah. they knew it was perfectly positioned to move laterally into a ton of businesses, and it was useful for that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I've. And- uh, just very quick, I have, a, I have a really good Russian friend, and one of the things I tried to explain to him, because I've been following Ukraine since before Euromaidan, like, this is something that's really important to me as a European, those people, like, they are, um, like, I said it on Twitter yesterday with uh, France, with uh, Liberté, Egalité, and Fraternité, they are our fraternity, you know, they are our brothers and sisters who are fighting for our freedoms, you know, they're fighting for theirs as well. But ultimately, this is about European culture versus what Russia wants, which is, well, what Vladimir Putin wants and his cabal. But, you know, in that kind of sense, like a lot of these people are just like collateral damage because they are end users of something or they happen to be in a certain geographic location or work at an organization. Because if you look at him targeting, right, is a huge part of any kind of information operation. Who are you targeting and why? And if you look at that, there's a lot of people who get caught up in the middle. And part of that's because like the likes of like internet advertising just lets you reach just yes. massive markets of people. But some of it, and like, I might like, like I don't really use Facebook, it's there, but if I liked something on Facebook five years ago, that might then pigeonhole me into a particular bubble and then cause marketing agencies to look at that and go, whatever automated systems they have, lump me in for this kind of thing. And then all of a sudden I'm at the bad end of information operations because of something like that. So, you know, how those things are accomplished ends up being really complicated. And if you look at Ukraine, in a lot of ways, Ukraine has ended up being the cyber weapons testing range. Yes, yeah. Well, weapons is kind of a poor choice of words. But, it, you yeah. know, Russia has t- has tested a lot of various different ideas for what can be done cyber-wise, you know. And they could do, like, the U.S. tested Stuxnet at the Y-12 National Security Facility. But, you know, Russia doesn't kind of have the same way of looking at things is the United States where ultimately the United States want to keep something like Stuxnet really secret, you know? But Russia's kind of happy to go and sit there and go, oh my God, we've got this whole vulnerability in Schneider PLCs or this other thing. Let's see what happens in Ukraine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's kind of their like, go-to for it, you know? So there just ends up being collateral damage because of the uh, scale at which you can reach things compared to a cruise missile yeah well well yeah and i mean we we've seen that already happening in the space right um you start talking about the software supply chain attacks that are going on like it's very easy to see from a you know software bill of materials what's being used in these different products and then targeting developers of those or accounts that have been taken over because of what they have access to not necessarily what they do um and it yeah, so I, I think it's going to continually be a problem. There's no getting away from it. Um, and then I start to question, okay, how do we how do we protect ourselves from like an industry perspective or from a, you know, from a silo perspective against this? Because I, 
like standing up against a, a NATSEC actor or somebody with those sorts of resources, it feels like a matter of when, not if, right? Like they're going to get in with the resources they have because I only have, like I'm a small 10 person company. I don't have dedicated security staff. Yeah, I try to train my developers to be secure, but hey, I, I just don't have the, the money for that. So where do I turn? What do I do in order to not be the next me doc, to not be the next you know small company that has a, a large footprint and a large effect against you know uh, these other organizations? And, but and, but yeah. not, not just that. If you look at um, NSA operations, for example, the NSA generally breaks... Now, this is a bit of a generalization because they don't necessarily work in four-man teams, but the minimum tends to be four people, and they will have a signals analyst, a signals developer. Uh... Oh, my God. Shit, I should know this. <laughs> There's two other ones. They're basically, they have uh, six-letter codes that are like SIG something, so like signals developer is a SIG dev, you know, and... But they basically have these people whose job is on shift to watch whatever system is being watched and wait for you to make a mistake. And, and that's the kind of thing you're up against. You're up against someone whose literal day job is to just sit there and just wait and wait and wait. And then when their shift's over, the next rotation of guys come in. And they're going to do the same thing again. And they're going to keep that up. You know, so if, if someone really needs to get into your system and that, that doesn't necessarily have to be for like, well, like it is nefarious, but like it's like it could just be purely for intelligence gathering because um, like the online databases of hotels who's staying where could be really interesting. Can you map passport movements through things like that? Because a lot of hotels do that. And can you then start to uncover Bellingcat style who various agents are of a country somewhere? You know, so when you're kind of up against that kind of um, like, I don't really like the term APT, but this is where the persistent side of this really comes in to, because it is completely pervasive. Their persistence, like they were, they have a dogged determination to just stay at it because that's what they're paid to do. It's more P than anything, honestly. Uh, and the the team type that that uh, Pat was just talking about are. Um, previously disclosed as, as joint task force Aries uh, teams. They were basically teams with like an Intel analyst, a signals analyst, a, a, uh, a keyboard operator. And yeah, there's another one in there, but it's four people that are literally sitting there in an op. Um, if you're Darknet Diaries actually had a great, uh, a great conversation with one of their operators. It was called Operation Glowing Symphony. That was uh, JTF Aries against ISIS. So that was a U.S. cyber command operation against ISIS to uh, deny, degrade, and destroy, which are the three Ds that you'll hear about in these. Um, <laughs> or, well, some of them. Um, you'll hear like F3 EAD and all sorts of stuff. But you'll, yeah. you'll see those. Um, you also might hear an M of manipulate. But uh, basically, uh, JTF Aries was meant to hunt these things down. But also on the flip side, the U.S. was testing out new concepts there, too, um, we sent what are called hunt forward teams to Ukraine. And basically they look for vulnerable infrastructure and indicators of compromise. So basically doing uh, penetration testing and threat hunting to see if you have any vulnerabilities and if they have been previously exploited and what can we do about those? What, how can we remediate those things? So and, and they, they were in, to give kind of a, 
a timeline of US intelligence confidence in what was going to yes. happen. There was a Financial Times report, I'll have to dig it up and put it in the chat, but that Financial Times report talked about this happening, if I remember rightly, in November of 2021. The other thing- Yeah, I, I, so, and, and that's the question. Again, that kind of goes, oh, go ahead, yeah. No, you cut out there for a second. Go ahead, Pat. The other thing I wanted to say was just on the, um, uh, when we were talking about uh, updating your threat models and risk models, one of the things that I said was like the big, one of the three big lessons you have to learn to take away from this conflict is that. That was number one of you have to reassess these things. And even I wrote a, a big piece for it on uh, Slack because sometimes to kind of like, uh, like lead by example really in how to kind of like show that like you've made mistakes and that these are some of them that they've done and I outlined in kind of a bit of an essay and then we've been doing um, what we call after action reports on basically like the week or two weeks in everything Um I went on and talked for like a half an hour about the various different things that like I did wrong and what I can kind of learn from them and what changes I kind of make to my processes based on these. And I've tried to implement some of them and you can kind of see them in like how much I'm posting in some ways uh, of the things that are going on. But it's really important that like, and especially when like, if you're an organization and you can't continually afford to update your systems, you know, if you are not update your system, sorry, update your threat and risk models. But, you know, there's a war happening in Europe. <laughs> if, if that's kind of not, you know, a giant waving alarm bell of like, no, you need to, you, you kind of need to, you know, that's, it's one of the things of like, if you can't, now is a really good time to, because you should be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it, it's it's a matter of recognizing what's going on and not sticking our heads in the sand, right? Like we don't operate in a silo from a from a ProdSec, AppSec perspective and the, the stuff that we have access to has real world consequences. Um, and and I, if anything, that's what, that's what I want people to take out of this discussion that we're having today is that, yes, we may not be like doing, you know, fully active OSINT activities around our applications, um, and maybe we should be aware of what's going on with the different software that we're using, we're depending on so that we don't end up being one of these. But at the very least, we've got to pay attention to what's going on in the world at large um, and at least disseminate some of that information on how it affects our application and our day-to-day -day and our users specifically, because it could have those real-world consequences. Um Stefan, what did, what was that last one that you just posted there? Sorry. Oh, that was that was the Financial Times uh, article that Pat was talking okay. about. It, it lays out their history of of uh, it. It's not the exact article where they broke the news, but it lays out their history of of discovering the hunt forward teams uh, operating in Ukraine, uh, and it, yeah. it it goes back to yeah November of of uh, twenty twenty one and 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 beyond. It's very very interesting. The concept is also interesting too, and I, I think. One of the one of the reasons why I'm interested in in, uh, in these sorts of operations in in these modalities of of working right it's a different context but a, it breaks down a lot of the hey you pen test and you you do uh, indicators of compromise and you do SOC analyst stuff 
it's more of a, a fluid team. You have Intel folks who are helping you with targeting. You have operators who, who actually know how to break things. You have, you know, cultural folks who can tell you, yes, that folder is actually interesting. That folder is actually nonsense. You know, it's, it's much more contextually aware when you're doing these sorts of operations. But one thing we haven't touched on, and we've sort of skirted around it, we talked about it in the beginning, is, uh, Pat, I'm curious, what is your definition of cyber war and cyber warfare? <laughs> we skirted it, and I think so, we, yeah. have similar, <laughs> we have similar definitions, but I'm curious what yours is, to put you on spot a little. <laughs> so um, I met one of uh, Thomas Ridd's PhD students not too long ago, and he was really impressed that I talked about in my B-Sides talk that cyber war doesn't exist. It, like, and, I, and I don't mean that of like Thomas Reed has a paper that says that, as in like it's literally a concept that doesn't make sense. Because the idea of war, it, it's, it doesn't even necessarily have to be... Um, well, it does kind of have to be kinetic. That's kind of where war comes from. But the idea is like, if you look at how war was fought throughout history, right? You don't have a thing where like war was exclusively fought in the sky or just at sea. There has always been this multi-domain conflict that's gone on across multiple levels of of like the dimensions of warfare as they're known. So, you know, even if you look at how these things evolve throughout time, um, in my B-Sides talk, I talked about it of like, we had land, fair, land warfare, which literally comes out of people playing with sticks and stones, very sharp, pointy sticks and very big, hard stones that hurt. But, you know, when they started naval warfare, the first naval battles weren't like... I have a battleship. No, they were like literally people built platforms on top of boats to have fights with sticks on a river. Like <laughs> they did kind of come up with that. And when like, um, even in World War One, where like the whole concept of air warfare was being kind of like, they were literally winging it. And I don't mean that in a pun. I mean, like they literally didn't know what they were doing and they were figuring it out as they went along. You know, that came to like fighter planes sometimes didn't have forward facing guns. They had guns that faced backwards so that they could get in front of someone they wanted to kill and then shoot back at them. You know, they had people who they literally put fins on big grenades and then chucked them out and used the Mark One eyeball to aim where the thing was going to land. And like when the US was playing around with carrier operations to begin landing on aircraft carriers, they literally, I don't remember if it was a bet or not. I might have that confused with another thing. But they, they, like, it literally came down to someone said, it can't be done. And another guy went, oh, really? And then yeah. he kind of, like, put a platform on a ship and landed a plane on it. Like, you know, you, these things aren't, like, fully formed ideas that kind of come out. And, like, that's why I don't really like using the term cyber, because in a lot of ways, this stuff is information warfare. Because <laughs> yep. we, we've been doing this for thousands of years. Like, cryptanalysis is information warfare, you know? <laughs> and we've been doing that on, like, sticks with leather wrapped around them since the times of ancient Greeks. And there are, you can go back to, like, the 700s when, like, proper mathematical cryptography was invented in Arabia. Or was it Persia? 
but it basically comes down to you had a bunch of Islamic scholars who were playing around with concepts in algebra and kind of like discovering this whole realm of maths we've never had before and realizing, oh my God, I can hide secrets in math. This is cool. Yeah. <laughs> and like, you didn't have like the, no, I'm going to break this and figure out what they're saying. No, that 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 comes like years later. First, you had to figure out that you could do these things. And even um, one of the things that I talked about in, um, I didn't get to talk about it in my uh, B-Sides talk because I, I originally had a radically different uh, talk planned. And uh, one of the organizers is familiar with my work and he basically went, um, can you give us like kind of like an idea of what's happening because no one really understands it. So I kind of gave an understanding rather than what I wanted to talk about. Cause one of the things I wanted to talk about was um, Japan in world war two was playing around with some wild electronic warfare to the extent that they had um, like ground control intercept things where you could intercept um, it's called like a Hama 63. If I remember rightly, it's in my blog post, but um they were playing around with the concept that you could put like an oscilloscope and they had some degree of logic behind it that basically allowed you to figure out how to intercept American aircraft and where you should go to intercept them at one. Like, <laughs> it's wild. And they're doing this through just like the Americans are just flying around with identify friend or foe boxes going, I'm here, I'm here, I'm here. And finding out how to hit that. And even um, there's a very interesting uh, attack on USS Bunker Hill where quite literally the the kamikaze attack that hit it multiple times, none of them, I think it was um, three aircraft in total attacked Bunker Hill at intervals of like five, 10 minutes. I think the entire engagement took 20 minutes. And in that engagement, None of them came up on radar. And I have a really good idea as to how Japan did it. Because if you look at these physically on an oscilloscope, right? Because it's an oscilloscope and it's not a digital signal, you have this sine wave that goes way up and then comes down and away. And if you look at the width of that, like the frequency at which it goes up, or sorry, it's the amplitude of the wave, it's the width across, right? One mile to two miles, depending on the view you have on it, is how big that wave is. So if you're within two miles of aircraft flying around the aircraft carrier and you can get in behind them, all of a sudden you're basically invisible to radar. And to be able to understand that that's happening and to use, because they actually captured British aircraft with this exact same system on it. And they tested this out in the in like 42 if i remember rightly you know so they were playing with what was essentially um the, I, it's there's a cwe for it as well where basically there was no authentication on the system you know they just flew in behind it and it was there and you could ping it with a radar and it would just always respond back so you know that's kind of like it's cyber warfare but it's before cyber was a thing, you know, and that's kind of why I look at these things as information warfare, you know, because these things have been around for a very long time. Even if you look at um, kind of how electronic warfare is used in a lot of different ways, there's there's 
types of electronic attack that basically, if you read them and kind of read between the lines, they're talking about going in between computer links to do things. And if you talk to cyber people about like going in between links to computers and playing around with stuff there, kind of sounds like you're attacking transmission equipment or um, something like uh, routers or something like that. So you end up in a situation where before we had cyber and we thought about these things as like networked computers, there were people looking at these things and going, that's a digital chip. I bet if I did something, I could, you know, inject code into it and it would come out like that. So, you know, that's kind of the main reason why I look at that. But the other reason I look at that is um, I don't like the term cyber. I kind of get it. I love the sci-fi route to it. But, yeah. um, you know, if you go back and look at the origins of cyber, it comes out of the NSA in the 80s and they called it information assurance because they were trying to figure out how do we know if some information has been compromised, you know? And it doesn't matter if that's a pile of paper documents in a filing cabinet, if it's this weird thing that went on a typewriter that the Soviets were using to figure out what the Americans were at, it, it doesn't matter, you know? Ultimately, the goal of all of this when it started was to ensure that information isn't compromised, you know? So I look at it as we don't do cybersecurity, we do information security. And one of the reasons I love to do it that way is um, there's a CTF, like a, a, an in-person CTF done every year, except for COVID here in Ireland, called Zero Days. And I help put on the lockpicking side of it. And the reason that we do the lockpicking and like we play around with like cryptexes and various different things like that is purely because in a lot of ways, that's still hacking, you know, You're, you can brute force it and you can get a rake and you can just rake the lock until it pops itself open, or you can take a more precise tool and knock up the various different pins until it opens up. I can give you a cryptex and you can try and figure out how it opens, or you can feel the mechanism as it goes around and you can see where kind of things sit for that and all of that it's just all the same mindset it just so and it's still protecting information on the other side of it but it's different and to a lot in a lot of ways as well as that like a lot of the stuff that we're trying to protect some of it is actually physical systems you know mm -hmm. they may be a computer on your network or even like even if you look at SCADA systems SCADA systems are basically a fancy web app that allows you to see the stuff that comes off of PLCs and motors and all sorts of stuff, you know? But it's just sitting there, and yes, it's a web app and it's a computer, but, like, ultimately what they're interfacing with is, like, literally a servo that just does this all day. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yep. So to look at these things ra rather as, like, it's only computers, but look at the bigger picture because these things do have a have a physical impact. Yep. Yep. But that's a very complicated way for me to say that, like cyber war is a load of garbage. I hate the term cyber. It's a waste of everyone's time. Well, <laughs> and, you know, I think it misses the forest for the trees. Really, that's that's kind of it.
I think what was one of the more interesting point to, to what you're saying, Pat, and I agree, like, I don't, I don't think there's ever going to be like cyber war. But one of the interesting things that I thought uh, came out of this book for me was uh, talking about doctrinal views of what is like, where does cyber fit in the spectrum of operations for, for other countries. And the most fascinating one for me was uh, when Russia talks about the like, um, they only use that phrase in the context of American use of the word cyber war. They themselves do not uh, tend to view it as cyber warfare. Their units are integrated with, with uh, their you know, battalion tactical group partners. Um, they, they tend not to have that sort of uh, like very separate view. It's not a separate domain, that sort of thing. And it's, it's interesting how countries manifest uh, cyber or information operations as they, as they go about. Um, the, one of the other things I posted in, in chat here was the, the Haversack ruse. This was a, uh, this was a, a World War II operation, um, but this, this was, uh, there, there were a few attempts at things like this where they would actually take a body of someone who had died. They may not have been a soldier. They would put papers on this person that, uh, that had, you know, oh, we're going to attack here. We're going to do this or that. And then they would drop them off the coast of, of a country, Spain, in, in the case of this Haversack ruse. And they would hope that the Germans would find them. They would hope that they found this dead body that they had planted to look like, uh, you know, some, someone important who had died in an airplane crash. And so we've been doing intangible warfare information operations and whatnot for the longest time, like Pat said. Um, and it's only become a separate domain because, honestly, culturally, the U.S. tends to separate out, uh, you know, application security and cybersecurity out from the broader information space. Um, it's like in other countries, you don't see computer science. You'll see informatics or you'll see, uh, you know, like those sorts of terms used because they don't separate out algorithms being specific to computers that can be applied to all sorts of information domains. So it's, it's a very, again, very interesting cultural context that uh, is very often missing from a lot of the, the work that we would do in normal AppSec. Yeah. As, as well as that, one of the things that, um, in, in a way, I've really been enjoying watching bits of the conflict because it's proving chunks of things I've been saying for a while, but yes. like I haven't really had evidence correct. Like I have thought for the longest time that Russian tanks are heaps of fucking junk that will do <laughs> nothing but get their soldiers killed. And I have had so many arguments about this and I just stopped. Like I literally like, as like I, I have history books on my bookshelf up there. Uh, on just like tanks and like individual tanks some of them are massive and you know i just left the community behind because i was sick of making these arguments that are just because to me it's so goddamn obvious like that if you surround your crew with explosives and anything happens to that tank all of a sudden the tank is going to go up in a million pieces and oh what's that we've seen turrets all of a sudden in orbit yeah. <laughs> oh, like little things like that. They're showing like really important military lessons that people are doing. And I think one of the things that's really interesting about that Russian way of viewing it 
that's actually how the U.S. is moving forward. Yes. Because um, if you go and look at the U.S. Army strategy from 2028 onwards, it's called Waypoint, right? Waypoint basically is going to put cyber operators in... Uh, they didn't give a unit size, which I thought was interesting. And I think they're still kind of playing around with the specifics of what the structure will look like. But... They plan fully on having um, these guys who are just doing cyber and information war things, right, inside regular army units. And if I remember rightly, they're at a theater or core level. And as well as that, if you look at the strategy, again, one of the things you'll see as well is they have a theater fires command. And this is basically where they're going to work with the Navy, the Air Force, space people um and anyone at like nsa on cyber things right and they're going to just sit there and go hey guys i need like something to blow up that thing over there you know and you could look at that thing and you can go super i've got cruise missiles cruise missiles will do problem solved or you could look at it and go okay maybe we need a couple of different things to solve that problem and you know if you have a complicated target or you have like a weird target for any particular reason you might not be able to use a particular type of tool to accomplish that you might need like some kind of like a, a glide body that'll come in and then like do some weird dive to get in and hit a target so it comes down to these are basically going to be trained people whose entire job is figuring out what's the best hammer to hit that nail over there because I've got 12 hammers and I love my toolbox, but I'm not allowed yeah. to use all of them. Yeah. Well, one thing I, I wanted to, I, I know we're going to have to wrap up soon, but Lori from yeah, arm control wonk asked a, a very interesting question. And I, I think, uh, I think a, a lot of what's come out of this has been, uh, or what's most interesting about Ukraine specifically is how involved regular folks are in this. A, a lot of the fighting, especially in the information domain, has been memes. And Lori asked specifically about uh, NAFO, the, the North Atlantic Fellas Organization. Um, if you're not familiar, they're, they're actually like a somewhat trolley group, somewhat like raised support group, but they, they basically respond to, to Russian politicians on Twitter um, with uh, Shiba Inu memes. And it has gone so far as uh, Adam, uh, th there's a Republican representative, uh, literally turned his private account into a, a NAFO, uh, uh, like a fella uh, with the Shiba Inu. So I was kind of curious about the, the mimetic dimension or the, the, like, the trolley dimension that you've seen here as well. You know, I, I kind of have a bit of a love-hate relationship with it because, like, some of the takes that people have on meme warfare are, like, they're so dumb. Like, it's not even that it's, like, like it's not that the concept itself is stupid. It's that some people literally don't understand bits of it. You know, like, um, the British uh, Ministry of Defence Twitter account, they've been publishing little... OSINT blobs that they they're not OSINT but like they're not publishing their ultimate data the cool stuff they're just giving like quick summaries declassified on Twitter and they had a thing about like how like cockerels this particular type of cockerel in Ukraine has become its own little uh, meme for resistance you know and that's kind of like what memes are in a lot of ways they're not necessarily NAFO 
You know, it's not because it's Shibu Inu. It's because these things have some kind of an ingrained meaning or have been given an ingrained meaning. It's one of the reasons that a lot of uh, neo-Nazis try and adapt various different things. So a few months ago on YouTube, uh, you'll notice all of a sudden there were the uh, tons and tons of videos getting millions and millions of views of icebergs explaining various different things. And I don't know how that got started, but for, for whatever reason, neo-Nazis were starting to use that as a way to funnel people towards their thing so that they would like, they'd like explain something in the world and it would start off at like, top level understanding so and so and like they give a perfectly reasonable or mostly reasonable like explanation of something like this and then if you dig down it starts to go not white people the jews and they start to really just then sit there and they're funneling people directly toward their content and once you're in that kind of in, like pigeonhole basically you know, th there's a filter bubble formed around you to be shown these things repeatedly. And they're very difficult to get out of. And a lot of this stuff is radicalizing because they don't necessarily go to, uh, like, okay, it went to me because I'm looking for these things because it's interesting to me. Like, it's information operations, whether people realize it or not. Like, you don't have to be a nation state necessarily to do it. And that's what NAFO is, you know. They're looking at really effective ways that really get under the skin of Russian politicians. And they do get under the skin and they do work because they, like there was one um, a couple of days ago where was it the, a spokesperson for the foreign ministry, I think, just sat there and went, I'm not going to bother with Twitter anymore. And then like 20 minutes later, he had another thing and he goes, I'm going to just put this tweet here just to see what responses it gets because I am sick of looking at these dogs. And then immediately there were tons of people. And it, it did like perfect trolling because he just started to then get into the cycle of being frustrated at these. And like, that's how you win a trolling, you know? So mm -hmm. sometimes it's like something like that that's really effective. But memes are these like cultural thing that has evolved. And like, if you go back and read, um, was it Hitchens or was it someone else who came up with the, the original concept in the seventies or eighties? Dawkins. Dawkins, Dawkins yeah. was the, was the meme. Yeah. Yeah. If you go back and look at that, the whole thing is about genetic lineage of ideas. You know, so these kind of ideas have a genetic lineage. And like, if you look at the lineage, like some of it's to do with the Shibu Inu basically being associated with like stupid things like Dogecoin, where like they're literally trolling the entire idea of cryptocurrency. And I, I love them for that. But then you have like the, the other side of it is like we can inject like anti-Russian things into this and it'll drive the Russians up the fucking wall. And it does. So, like, that's kind of how it works. So, like, NAFO is just, it's a really simple example of really brilliant information operations. And part of why this as well works is uh, one of the things I've talked to people about is the, like, preparation in warfare is, I can't understate how important preparation is. So, like actually training your soldiers, not doing like um, uh, some kind of military exercise where dear leader or emperor so-and-so always wins, where 
commanders are allowed to use their initiative and they have operational freedom to actually go and do these things, something that's very much missing in Russia, but there in Ukraine. But in, for a lot of regular Ukrainians, you know, they have gone into this conflict, you know, they haven't had blinders on like a lot of the rest of the world has. They knew in 2014, when those uprisings didn't work, this day was coming. Mm -hmm. It was just a matter of time. And they have been prepared mentally as well as physically. Like you could do some of the, some of the preparation is you could literally go into like town squares and areas outside major cities where the territorial defense forces just had set up training for anyone to come along. You didn't need to be specifics. They teach you small unit tactics, troop leading procedures, how to use a Kalashnikov, like, the whole nine yards of it, you know, they just like completely ad hoc military training for anyone who wanted to do it at this time and place every week now for the rest of time because the Russians are coming, you know. But as well as that, regular people have been prepared to sit there and go, well, when Euromaidan happened, we went out and we got major major international press and we did that because we told our stories and we told interesting stories and we did them well and they knew that this was going to happen and it was exactly the same things if you look at what was being promoted in various different places it was incredible pieces of uh propaganda like there was a woman on the, uh, an old babushka on the moscow metro like on the 27th like three days into the war when riot police in moscow were beating the shit out of protesters. And she had uh, a yellow rain jacket on with a blue headscarf. You know, that is an amazing show of resistance. And how that got to the very top of Twitter and seen by so many people, I I don't know the specifics, but I would say there's a lot of Ukrainians who saw something like that and knew how powerful that was. You know, and even there were little bits of like uh, people started coming out of bomb shelters, particularly teenagers to make Molotov cocktails in the first days of the conflict. You know, that's the level to which like the like as a group of people, they understood the importance of telling these specific stories rather than, you know, the war is terrible. Like it is terrible, but like that's kind of the traditional thing we hear. You don't always hear about like well fuck being in the bomb shelter I'm making Molotov cocktails because fuck the Russians and like when you're telling that as a story not just does that garner interest does it get people on your side um, but it also then like motivates other people to continue doing similar things and when you're looking at like effectively mobilizing an entire country for a conflict that's invaluable. Like, if you go back and look at how this used to be done in the 1800s and people would have, like, oh, it's the romanticism of war and there'll be travel mm-hmm. across the In a lot of ways, the Ukrainians have kind of sat there and went, fuck that. How do you feel about blowing up some Russians? And everybody's like, yeah. yeah. You know? And that's the kind of thing of, like, they're motivating not just their own people, but they're motivating other people as well. You know, so something like NAFO that works as trolling, but also then becomes like an easy way for existing kind of like trolls who just don't like the Russian government. You know, it's a way to all of a sudden mobilize that massive group of people. And like Mm -hmm. you mentioned earlier, the IT army, I don't think the IT army is all that impressive. I think it raises some really interesting legal questions. 
Yeah. But um, that's kind of where I go with it. I don't know how much is actually going to be accomplished by it. I haven't really looked into it. It's probably not the kind of thing we're going to know for 10 or 15, 20 years. But yeah. if, if you look at what they're doing in a lot of ways, if I was Ukraine, and there's a lot of smart people in the SSB, I would be sitting there and I would be basically going of like, that guy over there, he is really good at this specific thing. Let's start paying him. And then all of a sudden, he's working for the SSU, on like the state security service, working on various different things. And then coupled that with, um, there was a law passed by Ukraine very soon uh, into the war where they basically said, uh, foreigners can serve in the intelligence, which normally not a thing ever that's allowed anywhere. You yeah. know, so... Like they were prepared for all of this. They didn't have to radicalize any, anybody or anything like that, that you traditionally see, like, for example, neo-Nazis do with memes or tankies trying to find people who'd be susceptible to bullshit. Um, you know, those kind of things where you have to radicalize someone or uh, radical uh, Islamic belief in various different things, you know, those kind of things. You don't have to go and find these people and then radicalize them. You just have to find people who are already motivated and go after them. And that's the kind of thing that NAFO was doing. And that's what a lot of Ukrainian information operations are doing. Because you'll notice as well, if you look at the various different things that then like trend on somewhere like Twitter, unless you're looking for Russian propaganda and disinformation, a lot of what you see is very pro-Ukrainian because the Ukrainians have gotten really good at not just gaming the operations, um, and it doesn't it doesn't help that um, Zelensky is a comedian whose entire history has been in like kind of being like an internet troll before there was internet <laughs> troll. Like he's kind of born for all of this. So to have him and to have the people that they have, they just have to like give them things to go with, and they will go with them. You know. And even when you look at something like Saint Javelin. That's the same idea again of where like someone like me is going to look at St. Javelin and I'm going to go, I don't have space for any more patches, but goddamn, I got to get me one of them. <laughs> yeah. You know? And you see that with a lot of things. Like even there's, there's a there's a friend we have on Slack who's just been collecting pieces of aircraft that have been shot down. And they're like a thousand quid a piece. And it's only like a little chunk of aluminium that's been like, printed with a little thing that says yeah this was made in russia recycled in kiev or something like that you know mm -hmm. and it's the same kind of idea of just further motivating people and it raises money for them as well which is great interesting yeah it, it's it's i don't know the the whole information side of things i like i I don't get into that space enough, right? Like, you know, just from a day-to-day -day perspective and, um, you know, stepping back is a really interesting, it's an interesting thought process and an interesting, like, uh, remodel that I have to do with my own, like, okay. Um, that being said, I do, You want to be cognizant of your time, Pat, because we have been going for quite a while, and I feel like we could keep going. This is always the problem that that Stefan and oh, I have when I, we, when we I have can a podcast. Go for hours. Oh, am I? Yeah, yeah. I can go for yeah. hours. The only thing is, it's dinner time here. But apart from that, like, I'm not pushy for time. <laughs> well, what I was going to say is, I I have a hard stop. But what I was going to say is, I'd like to maybe like we've done absolute appsec after dark. Maybe we can do absolute natsec as a, as a separate one. <laughs> yes. Yes. Now. Yeah. We, we, we could figure it out from there. So 
yeah, let, we'll keep the conversation going. If people have questions, we'll send them to you on Twitter, Pat, um, at least for now. Uh, and um, is there anything else like, you know, I don't know if we can really put a bow on it, um, but, you know, is there anything else you want to comment on before, you know, it sounds like Stefan's going. So yeah. but anything else you want to talk about before, you know, we, we call it for today? Not really. Like a lot of this comes down to like, what do you people kind of want to know about in a lot of ways? Yeah. For, for me, like a lot of this stuff is kind of like I have been followed. Like I got into this because um, like it goes back further than OSINT. Like I know we talked about this um, before, but um, for me, like the cyber thing started with Stuxnet because I was doing mechanical engineering at the time. I was working on G codes with PLCs and actually pro programming systems to work. And then this thing came out that used code that would run on systems relatively similar to things to a degree that I could understand the PLC machine code to a degree as to what was happening. So get into it. I have then all of a sudden cyber starts ticking in my head and I have been like building computers forever. When I was a kid, my dad was a telecoms engineer. I'm like, grew up with a, like a ThinkPad with an old IBM ThinkPad that had, um, What's it's on it? The uh, AT&T, uh, oh. not Linux. Digital Unix. Yeah. Digital Unix. Right. Yep. Yep. Yeah. You know, so like I've grown up with these kind of things and played around with them. I broke Windows doing something at one point when I was like eight that a MCSE didn't know what the hell I had done to it, <laughs> couldn't figure it out. So like this stuff has been like always in the background for me and it's just basically now that i've had the opportunity to kind of look at a lot of these things and work on it that i can dive into my interests and figure out what a lot of them are so yeah. you know in a lot of ways understanding this and playing with it just comes around to looking at the various different things and trying to understand them and wanting to know what's going on and then finding the documents reading the documents understanding the documents and then like as i said before in the intelligence process coming around recombining your ideas with your previously held ideas and then going at them to see if you can pull anything out of it and you know if you kind of just apply that to something like i'm sure if you looked at that in appsec and you started to wonder about am i doing something a certain way is this the best process what's going to happen there like those are things that have legitimate business interests when it comes to like application performance or when it comes to like are do you have the most available system or something like that so like the, the tools that i'm using in a lot of ways like yeah they're intelligence tools but in a lot of ways they're just like tools that you could use for a lot of different problems. Yeah. So, like understanding them and implementing them and like implementing them for various different ways is just something that's like useful and something that people should like try and understand, you know? Yeah. You don't necessarily have to follow it to understand what's happening in Ukraine. You could do it for yeah. quite a lot of things and figure it out. So like other than like giving it a try and like having fun with it, like the only other thing I'd show was a weird little tweet where I Russian propaganda was talking about doing an information operation on a bridge. And I have uh -huh. absolutely no idea what they're talking about, yeah. <laughs> but uh, it's a thing they have. So that's kind of, that's the only other thing I'd mention because like outside of that, okay. it's really, what do you want to know? Yeah. I yep. have to talk and we'll talk for hours. <laughs>
Okay. Yeah. Well, we will definitely uh, push people that direction. And um, yeah, I, I mean, it, it's been informational for me. Like it's been good, like thinking about taking that step back, circling back around on threats on, you know, thinking about it from a different perspective. Like we always talk about circling back when we we're looking at code, we're looking at security about different aspects. Um, but like revisiting it from a different lens is, is, is kind of the takeaway that I've got from this. So I, I really appreciate you taking the time and yeah, we'll, we'll have people follow you on Twitter. We'll post it up there make sure that that's, that's available. Um, but otherwise like I appreciate the time and um, is there anywhere else? Like, are you going to be at any conferences coming up? Um, I know most uh, of us aren't traveling anymore. Not speaking, but uh, if anyone goes to Iris Cert in Dublin, I will most likely be at Iris Cert. Um, okay. I'm not 100% sure yet, and that'll probably be it until besides Dublin next year. And okay. once that starts and the Irish conference circuit gets going again, I will be at a ton of them. Yep. Big fan yep. of going. Yes, yes. That, we're, we're all like that here. It, think, it feels like things are starting back up nowadays, um, at least stateside. Um, but you know, Europe will hope hopefully get there as well, and hopefully get get over there and see you, you know, face to face. And I'll buy you a beer or two. Okay, yeah, very happy to do so. All right. Well, thanks for your time. Thanks everybody for joining today, and uh, you know, we will see you all online.